Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, July 27th, and I'm the host of this episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma as we take a look at the largest direct-to-consumer retailer of plus-sized women's clothing in the United States that is a mouthful, uh, Torrid. Uh, Asit, how are you doing today? Emily, I'm fine. Uh, Good to be back with you on this show. Yeah, it is. You had a a week off. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. (laughs) It's good to have you back. And this was a business that we had talked about covering a couple of weeks ago. We ended up replacing it with Crocs. Um, But it's worth circling back around on because when I was in the mall, as listeners will know, at the Crocs store a few weeks ago, there's actually a store right across from it in my local mall called Torrid. And, And this is an interesting business. They actually recently went public while the I think the market maybe didn't quite give them the nod that other IPOs have gotten. It is a really interesting retail business. As I mentioned before, they have a really well-known direct-to-consumer brand that's aimed at plus-sized women's clothing in the United States. Certainly an interesting and, and potentially really lucrative market. Yeah, and I think a key word here is underserved. Lately, Emily, I've had a fascination with markets that um, just have been ignored for one reason or another over the years and that now have more of a focus on them. Because again, for those of you who uh, maybe are newer to investing, one of the things you look for is a market that itself is growing and expanding when you're looking for investments that can return you um, great operating profits and, and a performing stock over a long period of time. And this certainly, I think, is one of those. Definitely. They have what they claim to have, uh, I should say, they claim to have very long-standing relationships uh, with the intent of building up trust with the 90 million plus plus-sized women in the United States. Um, these are women who wear what they call size 10 or above. I always have a bone to pick with you know, women's clothing retailers because sizes in the United States for women's clothing are not standardized. So um, it's a kind of meaningless number when you talk about size 10 or above, uh, but it is aimed at people who, for traditional sizes, what they call straight sizes, hasn't quite worked, right? So like clothing that hasn't been tailored to specific body types. And uh, Torrid has found that for these 90 million plus plus sized women, um, their number one priority is actually just fit. Like they want something that fits well. And uh, Torrid has really made this kind of their extreme focus in developing their merchandise and, and product line. Yeah, fit is so important. And we'll talk about the company's CEO, Liz Munoz, in a second here. But you really identified something that she is fond of saying. What do uh, those customers who wear plus-size clothing want? They want what the rest of us want. (laughs) They want a good fit. And they want clothes that are comfortable, that are functional, but also stylish. It's not that hard to figure out is is, um, what her message is. At the same time, this is an overlooked part of the fashion retail industry. And uh, I think when we dig a little deeper into this company, you'll see why it's not a straight line to to hit this part of the market and do it well. I will say it's interesting, Emily, you mentioned that sizing in the US isn't standardized. 
And you also mentioned the size 10 and above. 10 is like a symbolic size, I think, where you enter the the limit of what is called straight size clothing or traditional clothing into the, the larger sized market. That seems to be a number, even though nothing is standardized, like a magic number. And we're going to talk about some sizes that are in excess of that uh, today. Yes. And I, I, I will also say that uh, Torrid, while trying to serve this market, um, they're not trying to be fashion leaders, which I think is an, kind of an interesting angle that Torrid is taking with their approach. Uh, what they're trying to do is just internally design and develop um, their own products, what they call vertical sourcing, uh, in order to provide just consistency, both consistency in the type of product, but consistency in that fit. And with that, that 90 million plus demographic, they're only selling to about 3.2 million active customers. And they're doing it via a mix of both e-commerce, which is obviously as we all discovered last year, but also, you know, we've been alive for probably the past 10 years. So we know the growth of e-commerce, but they're matching it with in-store sales as well, which has been uh, one, some would argue, really critical for this demographic because again, sizing is not standardized. So going out and making a purchase online without having any um, sense, I guess, of what that size is going to feel like on you can be more challenging. Marrying the e-commerce with the in-store experience has been really critical for Torrid to increase their sales. And what they found is that customers who have purchased both online and in-store make around eight purchases a year in comparison to just three purchases for people who only uh, engage over a single channel. Yeah, it's very interesting that Torrid doesn't describe itself as one type of retail or another. They call themselves a direct-to-consumer company. They even don't like the term omni-channel, although they use it. What they prefer to think of their stores as is an experiential type place where the priority is, yes, to sell that piece of clothing, but to also make sure that the customer is comfortable and gets to the fitting room and can try on some sizes. She doesn't have to buy today is a message that management has uh, given in various interviews as the company was gearing up to go public. It's really about getting in touch with the brand, understanding that you've got a place to go if you do want to come in and try on a new look. But the emphasis isn't on any single point in the channel. Although, as you mentioned, the e-commerce part right now is the predominantly, uh, or the biggest part, I should say, of the total revenue line. Yes, and that was certainly catalyzed by 2020. I think e-commerce was something like 70% of sales in 2020, but it was still very e-commerce oriented even prior to the pandemic. I believe e-commerce was around 48% of sales in 2019. So this is definitely a, a something that management has been executing on far prior to just last year, but I, I think it has catalyzed that omni-channel experience because now people who have been engaging with Torrid, maybe only in store, are aware that e-commerce is an option. They can increase their repurchasing rates. I will say something you asked me before we started taping today, which was an interesting question, one I had to think about was, you know, do I really own any retail businesses in my portfolio? And I, I think having some more minutes to reflect on my portfolio, I don't think I do. I don't think I own a single pure retailer. And I do think it has been because I have this perception of what a clothing retailer is, especially a business like Torrid, which has stores and, and strip malls and regular malls. Uh, I guess a, a model of, of customer experience and purchasing that I just view as outdated, but they've certainly been capitalizing on it well and I guess expanding a demographic of, of, of 
consumers that has just been really underserved. Yes. And, you know, I, I sprung this question on you a few minutes before taping and, and we were chatting beforehand. I was saying, Emily, I can't think myself of a, a retailer like that that I own, but I do own one. It's now that I've given myself some time to think about it, which is Canada Goose. But the interesting thing, uh, Canada Goose is a niche retailer. They make these incredible parkas that start, you know, 800 bucks and gone up into the thousands. But they also have a store footprint that's experiential. They've got rooms that simulate an Arctic environment. So you can walk in to a sub-zero room with their coat on in a, in a shopping mall. This is more to be found in Canada. There are flagship stores there, but a few here in the US as well. So yeah, I really think it's a hard model. But when you get one that's tilted towards e-commerce like this, with the express purpose that that physical footprint is about the experience. It's about the learning process. So you can choose to buy in store or out of store. A model like that can make sense. And I I feel that for myself personally, when markets really crash is the time that I'm more interested in taking a look at companies like a Torrid or a Canada Goose or some of the more uh, e-commerce direct consumer direct-to-consumer companies that we've talked about recently, like a Poshmark or Revolve, these types of internet uh, fashion retailers. That's a really good point to make. Discretionary spending in particular for retail businesses, especially those that have such a big retail footprint like Torrid does, uh, it, they're more sensitive to the, those changes. And I, it can be a more compelling when you know maybe the economy is doing worse than it is right now. I tell you what will almost convert me on this business, though, is I, I got to see some metrics that I feel like I haven't seen broken out in such a clear way for a very long time. And that's the lifetime value to customer acquisition cost. And uh, I think it's pretty impressive. I will say this is the 2015 cohort that Torrid is using when they talk about this number. So arguably one that's potentially outdated. But uh, the 2015 cohort had a five-year lifetime value to customer acquisition cost of around 7.4 times, meaning they're making that much more money than it costs to acquire that customer over their life cycle. Um, And 95% of their sales come from people who are members of at least one level of their loyalty program. That to me says, Oh, that's a lot of that's a lot of customers that really identify with this brand and will continue to make reper- repeat purchasing. Well, number one, Emily, I'm I'm happy that they included those metrics because I know you've been miffed. I think the last seven or eight IPOs, <laughs> you've been miffed by the lack of detail. What is going on with this with these customer acquisition costs? But I have learned from you in that space of time that it is really important to focus on those unit economics because, man, they play out in the financial statements. So I was happy to see this too. You know, you mentioned when we were prepping for the show that the company has a net promoter score of 55. Now, a net promoter score is just a measure of advocates versus detractors in your business. We're used to seeing companies tout a score of 70 or above on this metric. We look at a lot of tech companies where they're very focused on uh, an easy-to-understand product without a lot of variability, and they can put a lot of money and time and resources into customer service. Retail is a different industry. The return rates are really high. It's a very subjective industry. When you buy a piece of clothing, sometimes you take it home and you realize it's just not for you and you return it, you're not as satisfied. Sometimes that's on you. Some and I've had this experience. I'm not the best looking guy in the world, and sometimes I'll put on a shirt and and, and be like, 
what, what are these people doing? This, look, my shoulders look so skinny in their shirt. What's up with that? Well, the truth is I studiously avoid going to the gym. And so this is really part of the equation that I ignore. But, but my satisfaction with that clothing retailer dips a bit. It's a really subjective experience. So you were saying, hey, 55, not crazy, but it's pretty good for a retailer like that. And you were describing how that you think is really contributing to this repeat business that they're very good at and the customer loyalty, which they seem to be developing as they grow as a brand. I, I tend to be kind of critical when I see low net promoter scores because it, it can be kind of be gamed, I guess. The companies that report it um, tend to be in industries, to your point, that have a much easier time having somebody saying, yeah, of course, I'd recommend this to my friends. Retail is a different beast. And when I got into some of the, I guess, criticisms of Torrid, it, it was everything you'd expect from a retailer. Their return policies weren't favorable. Um, some of their stuff fell apart. It took too long to ship. Um, I didn't get my refund, right? The store credit card was challenging for me to use. All of these like I would say legacy problems as if they're old, but in reality, they're still challenging for retailers to this day. So that that net promoter score, that NPS of 55, I think is is not terribly you know notable, but it it is more it's higher than most retailers. And when I combine it with that, the fact that 82% of sales in 2020 came from prior years customers, that to me says, okay, well, the people who are promoters of this business, right? The people who are contributing to that 55 are the same people who are driving the majority of their revenue. So, you know, I care less about the people who are having a hard time returning their shoes or some clothing that maybe didn't fit the way they want it to. And more about just constantly getting more purchases from the people who are big promoters and lovers of the brand. Um, but I know that you you mentioned the, the CEO at the start of the show, I spent very little time in today's prep looking into to her, Liz Munoz. You know, I cannot pronounce her last name. Munoz. I think it's Munoz. Munoz, I think. excuse me. I, think. <laughs> um, I, I clearly didn't spend enough time because I can't pronounce her name correctly. But I saw when I jumped on our outline this morning that you had added a lot of really interesting information about her. And in my attempt to maybe clear up my blind spot before we started taping, I, I did find her Instagram. And I wasted a good 20 minutes scrolling through her Instagram and... It made me feel really compelled about the leadership of this business. Yeah, it was such, such a great point, Emily. Uh, Liz Munoz has a really fun Instagram. She is very stylish. Um, she is a Latina and has um, just a sort of a celebratory vibe about her. Um, I, I too was impressed just sort of scrolling through. And I think it's important... And we often, there's so much to look at in a prospectus. I think you and I are, are less focused maybe than some um, at The Motley Fool on the requirement that a great business has to be founder-led. Because sometimes, you know, that just doesn't happen for one reason or another. And uh, often you will see a company that is doing well in its particular market helmed by a, a person who's really interesting and has a great backstory. And I, I think Liz Munoz has that. She has been with the company since 2010, has been leading it since 2018. In the press releases uh, that the company puts out about Munoz periodically, she is a self-described, and I'm putting this in quotes, big girl. And she's got a very personal connection to this brand. Her story is that in the 1980s, as a teen, she sewed her own clothes 
because of a lack of clothing options for plus-sized women in stores. And in various interviews, she's talked about the experience of going into the store and and looking around to see if there's anyone else that she knows. Because uh, in years past, plus-sized clothing was something that was associated with shame. She actually sewed her own prom and wedding dresses and started her career in the jeans business as a pattern maker. Now, she worked her way up through the ranks of uh, Torrid over a period of eight years. She was promoted to the CEO position in 2018. The thing that I find so interesting about Munoz is that she is a product person. As she was working her way up through the company, she focused on fit. It was her big thing. From her experience as a teen, she loved patterning. She loved the way clothes fit. So she had this team. They would spend 40 hours a week fitting between 140 and 175 professional models, live models, every day. The company says that over three and a half years, she fitted 36,000 items of clothing on professional size 18 models. She even would fly customers overseas to the manufacturers of the company's Intimates lines so that the engineers could see the diverse bodies they were molding bras for. I found this really similar to various experiences I've I've had in the tech industry where you have a founder who started working as a designer of a product and then built a company around that. She didn't build this company, but I think for this marketplace, the fact that the company describes its focus on fit as maniacal, I think it's a source of competitive edge. And I think they're lucky to have a CEO in Munoz who just is so drilled in on this one aspect. She says that the company has broken a lot of traditional fitting rules as it's designed products for its customers. And and she also says that this is so interesting. Once a fit for a certain garment is settled, at Torrid, you need an affidavit to change the fit. (laughs) So if you think about a shirt or a skirt or a pair of jeans that you will buy at any retailer, within a year or a couple of years, that very same style may have a slightly different fit. Now, let's exclude Levi's jeans, which seem to never change. They got the 501, 505s. Those always have the same fit, right? But as you move up the fashion chain, this is a phenomenon of straight-sized clothing. They really, the manufacturers, the designers don't care that the fit never changes. But in the plus-size industry, you want consistency. And she has uh, pushed this as a person who wears plus-size clothing herself. Muno says, you just cannot change in our company a fit once we establish it. Now, they can introduce a new line of clothing or a new product, but that is something that as a customer, a loyal customer, you can buy again and again and again without having to worry that suddenly, wow, this doesn't flatter me anymore. They changed the game on me. And I think that's a, a competitive edge, as I said, as the company moves forward to, to try to grab more of this market. It's very rarely that one person or one aspect of a business really changes my mind about it from from the perspective of an investor. But in this case, I think Liz actually does. I will say I did a bunch of research into their their ownership, you know, Sycamore, big PE firm that has invested in a ton of different retailers, owns 75% of this business. They have a controlling ownership. And I, as a result of that, didn't even think to look into the CEO because in my mind, I thought to myself, well, it's probably a CEO that Sycamore has put in place that, you know, cares 
not at all, I guess, about the mission of Torrid. And in my mind, I was thinking, this is a marketing play. This is a business that is taking clothing and marketing it as clothing that has been especially tailored to fit a certain demographic, trying to play off of that marketing angle and, and you know, make a pretty penny, but they're repeating, you know, rinsing and repeating this retail model. I, I think I felt very, I don't know, skeptical about how revolutionary Torrid really could be given its its funding, given its its mall presence, all these sorts of things. But I think Liz, if you if you just take five minutes to to read about Liz, to your point, Asset, hear about her background, I think this is the perfect CEO for this business. I think she is obsessed with with Torrid's mission. And I actually think that this IPO and the potential cash out from some of their their PE ownership could put her in a position where she can actually make meaningful change in this business and and really raise the stakes at Torrid from being just another, you know, uh, plus-sized women's retailer to being the go-to plus-size woman retailer in the United States. So I, I, I actually, coming out of that, I, I changed my opinion a lot about the business purely because of the CEO. Well, Emily, let's delve into that market opportunity to see if Liz Munoz and team can, can really exploit this. It's interesting that we've got this perception, many of us, that the plus-size market is sort of a specialty market. But in the company's prospectus, they point out that two-thirds of all U.S. women are actually sizes 10 plus or plus-sized. That market, however, is only $85 billion a year in comparison to the $96 billion a year market for straight-sized clothing. So it is an underserved market with less spend. But Torrid thinks that this underspend is a huge opportunity in and of itself. It's on the order of $20 billion a year, which leads to a total addressable market of $104 billion. And they think this market is going to grow itself annually at a 3 to 5% compounded annual growth rate. In their prospectus, they have some really interesting stats that, that are convincing and make me think, okay, for a really long-term hold, this company has some appeal. They note that there's only one dedicated women's plus size apparel store for every 51 women's specialty apparel stores. Just to break that into like a different slice of statistics, there were approximately 78,000 plus sized women for each dedicated women's plus size apparel store in a survey that they uh, used as compared to about 700 women for every other women's specialty apparel store. So that's a huge differential and just shows you the opportunity in this market. Now, the spend in the market is smaller, but the growth is there. And also the company's small slice of this, it is sort of uh, interesting to note that it's a fragmented market. As you would expect, Emily, there are a lot of smaller competitors. There are some bigger well well-known names like Lane Bryant. But the biggest message here is that the average plus-size woman is underspending on apparel and intimates annually when you compare her to a non-plus-sized peer. And that's where this company sees some revenue gains ahead, which should translate into higher profits and cash flow in years ahead. 
And I think there is the argument that some will make that is, well, maybe this demographic just isn't as interested in buying clothing as straight-sized market is, right? Um, and you could you know, make a social argument that even if we do have specialty retailers aimed at serving, they will never purchase the same rate that the traditional straight-sized market will. And um, I guess while we will answer that question or Torrid's performance may answer that question for us, I tend to think that's not the case. I, I think experience, you know, as, as somebody, who, for instance, I have very large feet, um, unusually large feet. When I walk into a store, um, there is usually only a, a few selection of shoes that will be in my size. And I oftentimes walk into a store wanting to buy a pair of shoes, but leave without any pair of shoes because there were no cute ones in my size. I had three options and I didn't like any of them. That experience is very similar for people who are not in straight sized market, right? They walk into an H&M, they walk into a Forever 21, just naming off some you know, female retailers here. And and you know, straight-sized uh, shoppers can look over the entire store, but then people who are plus-sized have, here's your small section of the store that's aimed at serving this demographic, and you walk over there and you're like, well, I just don't like any of these things, right? I don't have the same selection or options that that you know the majority of the store is laid out for. And I think that is the reason for the underspend. I could be wrong, but if I had to bet, I would think that's the reason for the underspend, not a lack of interest in making more purchases. So I do tend to agree with management here that this is an underserved market for which the addressable market could expand. I think it's probably going to grow at a faster rate than the straight the straight sized market is and probably going to increase the average spend with time. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on it, Emily. In fact, I remember reading uh, Liz Munoz talk about this phenomenon. Her conclusion is that if you've got, if you have this experience a couple of times walking into a store and not finding anything that suits you, what's going to happen later? You're just going to give up. I mean, what's the incentive to keep going back into stores if you never find what suits you? And that's why that part of the market maybe is quieter and will grow louder as attitudes change towards plus size clothing and messages of diversity, of inclusiveness, changing aesthetics start to take hold in our society. Um, and I think that's only positive in terms of choice that people have for apparel. And I think it's part of something else that's a positive trend in our society in, in general. As much as things often seem to be heading the wrong way, we as a society are widening our view of uh, different things where we've had fixed opinions in the past. Again, this opens up new markets for investment, so you can have your cake and eat it too in that sense. But um, tell me something, why wouldn't a traditional retailer just jump into this market? What's what's so difficult for traditional retailers to, to get about this and to participate? It's it's been related to the costs and and issues of running an entire second line for traditional retailers to even serve the plus sized market because most most brands will start with what is a smaller model and then tweak those adjustments upward and the result of that is a fit that doesn't really suit um, the sizes that they're making it for right um, what Torrid and and uh, admittedly other retailers Lane Bryant being another good example do is they start with their average sized customer which for Torrid is typically around size 18 and then tweak from there so the clothing is made for their average demographic in a way that is really challenging for traditional retailers to you know, adjust their entire product line to make those changes and you can say well 
yes, retailers are becoming more aware of this and they're making these adjustments, taking on the cost, which some estimates have it at over half a million dollars just to get into the plus size apparel market. They're taking on these costs to serve this market. But if you look at the stats, and I, I love the stat from the NPD group from 2019, um, less than 20% of apparel is made in sizes 14 or larger, which represents 70% of women in the United States. So even with the awareness from traditional retailers that they need to target this demographic, um, they're clearly not doing a great job because it's not even just sales, it's actual manufacturing of apparel that suits their needs is still significantly less than the total market. Yeah, it's true. And I think that the traditional straight-sized retailers, they really struggle with both design and development, that whole process for plus size, because it's it's more in- intricate. And it requires a lot of, of stuff that just aren't as much of a consideration in straight-sized clothing. You've, you've got non-conventional placement of seams. You have strategic use of microfibers um, and stretchable fac- fabrics, all kinds of design considerations. In fact, there's a really great graphic in the company's prospectus where they show different garments and how they are adjusted for the plus side market, such as boots with a wider calf and ankle, um, coats with super stretchy brushed fabric. So that gives you both like a close fit, but it's also comfortable. Um, how they manipulate the, the imagery to be on trend is something else we don't think about. Traditional retailers, sometimes they feel like they've made it to the finish line if they can just get the size right. And actual like cool design becomes a secondary consideration. Again, if you look at Liz Munoz's uh, Instagram, their clothes are cool. I mean, their they're clothes, clothes that you would want to wear, they're, very, they're fashionable, they're on trend. Um, but there's so much into this. I'll just, before we move on, just mention that even their cotton is a proprietary cotton spandex um, mix, which gives it more stretching capabilities versus a typical uh, fabric. So this type of clothing can become, if you can master it, can become its own edge in and of itself. It's so hard to do. Let's talk about their financials a little bit because I think this is maybe where the argument starts to fall apart for me a tad. Um, yeah, sure. uh, Their financial performance, despite having a really great breakdown of the lifetime value to their customer acquisition costs, as I mentioned earlier, doesn't really show up in terms of bottom line profits or even just um, free cash flow generation. Uh, there's a few reasons for this. I think part of it is because they do rely a lot on third parties for manufacturing, um, using third parties for distribution. That can tend to be a bit costly. Um, but they also just have a, a ton of money in long-term debt. Uh, I think Sycamore has really loaded them up, uh, used some of that debt to do stuff like pay Sycamore a nice pretty dividend, something we see unfortunately pretty often uh, with these type of PE involvement. But that has really prevented the company from gaining a lot of actual earnings. While they're profitable, their net income has actually fallen pretty substantially from $87 million in 2018 to just $25 million over the last 12 months um, as of May 1st, 2021, despite the fact that their sales have grown, active customers have grown, adjusted EBITDA has grown. So it kind of made me a little bit nervous, I guess, in terms of just pure financial performance for this business. 
Yeah, I agree. It was hard for me to get a gauge on the financials. Typically, when a new company comes to market, you get three to five years worth of financial performance, and you can pretty much draw out the trends. Now, once in a while, there will be a kink in the progression. So, you'll see a couple of years of strong growth, and then an off year, and management explains it. But here we've got a company that had an off year. The next year was the pandemic year, and uh, the the progression of, of these really clouds exactly what's going on. So in the year that ended February of 2020, their their fiscal 2020 year, they had a lot of trouble managing their growth. Uh, they, they had difficulties with their inventory. They brought on a new chief operating officer um, and the, the COO reduced their stock keeping units by 20%, instilled a lot of purchasing discipline. But you know, while the, the company sort of says that, that this was just a growing pain. This was the, the issue in that year. Their marketing expense also jumped and their interest expense jumped from a million dollars in the prior year to $16.5 million that year as new debt was added to the balance sheet. Now, we'll return to this point Emily mentioned in just a moment. So, you follow up that year with a year in which no one is going into the stores because of COVID-19 um, and the, the top line drops by about 6% to $974 million. Net income jump, uh, drops again. So we're looking at a progression again, $87 million in the year ended February of 2020. Um, sorry, of, of, of February of 2019. And then the $42 million that you mentioned down to $25 million. You just have a declining trend. And we've got to give them a pass for last year as we've given every other company that we've talked about, except the few that that really like catapulted their sales for, for various reasons during the pandemic. But it just gives one pause that the company hasn't been able to manage its growth a little better. And here we come to the role of Sycamore, which still owns, as you mentioned, a majority of the company. I will note that none of these, these proceeds from the IPO are going uh, to the company's coffers where it can use it for growth or R&D, product optimization, etc. This is really just a Sycamore cashing out a portion of their uh, investment. Nothing wrong with that, but still you've got a third party that can call all the shots. And this becomes important when you think about the the debt. So, Emily, if you can sort of describe for us the debt picture here, and I know I've got a couple of comments too, it's crucial to understanding the rest of this story. At face value, the business has around um, $340 million now in long-term debt. That's not including their lease obligations, which you could argue is is a form of debt. But it, to me, the the more concern is is Sycamore's role, I guess, and how levered this company has become. They recently increased their total financing in part to pay down higher interest term loans, but also to make a pretty hefty distribution to Sycamore. Um, I noted that the, out of the new term loan they took out, again, increasing that debt to $340 million, um, there's a $130 million distribution to Sycamore. Um, and then you mentioned that they actually had a cash distribution, I believe, of $170 million, if that's correct, on top of that. Um, on top of that. So, so essentially, they um, sent $300 million to Sycamore. Part of it was in this refinancing, but then they took 
about, I think it was 168, 169 million, almost 170 million off of their own balance sheet. <laughs> so the last balance sheet we have, the pro forma balance sheet, which sort of says, hey, after the IPO, this is what pretty much what the balance sheet is going to look like. Cash is down to 19 million. Uh, so when we talk about cash out, we're talking about two things here. We're talking about Sycamore being able to sell its shares, a portion of its shares, as the company went onto the public markets, but also the combination of this distribution in the refinancing that you're talking about, Emily, and this other distribution around the same time, right off the balance sheet. And this is the peril of a company. On the, on the one side, we've got a really great story here. I think a, a market which is so interesting, a CEO as we've talked about, who's who's very dynamic, but you've got these private equity owners, and, and we should mention here that they're also part owners. Sycamore is part owners of competitor Lane Bryant, also Loft, Hot Topic, Talbot, so other companies which also specialize in the, the plus size market. I find that interesting as well. But the bottom line here, just this thinning out of the balance sheet sort of demonstrates what can happen when a big private investor can really influence what is happening with the resources that a company has to operate. Uh, Sycamore has definitely treated Torrid, um, especially recently, more like a piggy bank than a business that they think probably has the opportunity to aggressively grow. I think their distributions are a good example of that. Uh, The only other kind of fear I have is even before these big cash outs under their previous term loan, um, they had issues just keeping up with the covenants of that. It required them to take a $20 million cash distribution from Sycamore to Torrid just to ensure that they didn't actually accidentally default on one of the terms of their prior credit agreement. And with this new agreement, it has a lot of the same um, caveats that the prior one did. For instance, the debt is floating rate, which does expose them to, I guess, interest expense You know, if rates increase. But they also have provisions that require prepayment starting in 2022 based on a portion of free cash flow. So despite the fact that we should give credit where credit's due in terms of the operating cash flow that Torrid does continuously generate, uh, the free cash flow, I think, is more impacted as a result of these I guess, prepayment obligations under their term loans. It's just, they're so heavily indebted that it makes me a bit nervous. Um, the only other thing, which I, of course, have to add when we talk about risks with businesses, is this is a business that has material weaknesses, uh, which actually resulted in the necessary restatement of prior financial performance, uh, which to me just becomes that much more frustrating that we had a private equity firm that just under-resourced and understaffed such a critical component of a business, especially that prior to an IPO. So there's, in terms of the balance sheet here and and the trust that I have with, with, I guess, Sycamore, uh, it doesn't excite me. Uh, Interesting. I mean, I, I agree with you. This is such a, I think, cloud over the investment thesis. I read that this was Sycamore's first experience with actually taking one of these companies in this industry public. But the manner in which they did it really creates a lot of doubt going forward. I actually am not worried about the uh, the debt obligations because now they've got an owner whose value is in these public shares. They've sold out, and, and I, I forget the exact figure, 30-odd percent of the company, but the majority still exists in the viability of this as 
uh, a healthy company and a company whose share price will rise if they want to sell more shares in the future. So I can see if push comes to shove that Sycamore, like other companies we've seen where this relationship is prevalent, a lot of venture capital or, or private equity ownership, a company with a certain amount of its float that's public, the big pocketed owner steps in and supplies some cash on difficult terms, but the company stays afloat. More to the point, though, is I think what's implicit in everything you just said, Emily, where is the investment? Where is the parent company coming in and saying, hey, you guys are going public. We're going to be able to cash out a little bit of our investment. We feel good about that. And we're going to put some more money on your balance sheet because we want you to invest in research and development. We want you to market and to bust into those uh, new opportunities that you have. We, we really believe in this business. The numbers don't tell that story. The numbers tell a story of caution and trying to get out while, while the going is good, which really undercuts the, the rest of this narrative that is there in the S1, the, the strong customer loyalty, the, the very wide market, the, the underserved market, the opportunity for it to grow at 3 to 5% and the company to grow at a faster rate than the market, this dynamic CEO who intimately knows how the product should work and has been able to grow the company through this relentless focus on fit for plus size, all of this starts to fade when you look at how the, the true ownership of this company has utilized the resources in just the past three months. And it was a big negative for me. And and maybe, Emily, that was what prompted me to ask you and myself the question right before we started taping, literally two minutes before we started taping. Do you own any fashion retailers? It's a hard business. And and this is not the kind of drag that you need going forward over the long term. I I find myself really wanting Tora to succeed. It reminds me of how I felt about Crocs when we talked a couple weeks back where you know, I, I I like the people who are running the show. I like the cult following both these businesses have. And I I do want to believe that retailers, even those that are centralized in places like malls that have really large retail footprints, maybe have a bit of a traditional, you know, higher debt balance on their balance sheets, that they can succeed. And I say that while also being acutely aware of the fact that I'm probably not going to be buying shares in either of those businesses for the foreseeable future. I, I don't see that happening for myself and I guess how I prioritize the management of my portfolio. So it's challenging. I don't own any of these direct retailers. If I was, which of which you know I think I, I need to, there would be businesses. We, we mentioned Lululemon at the top of the show, but there would be businesses that I think would be in a much better position to really capitalize on that intersection between e-commerce and, and physical retail with building out loyal followings that have higher levels, I guess, of execution in comparison to Torrid. So for that reason, I'm probably not adding anytime soon, unfortunately. Yeah, well said. You know, you can learn from companies. Not every company is an investment or a market for your hard-earned dollars, but you can certainly learn about the way industries work by studying these prospectuses. This one's a pass for me, but I did learn a lot about an industry I wasn't familiar with, and it helped build my knowledge on the rest of the, the retailing industry. So, 
I guess the message is in this particular neck of the woods, set a high bar <laughs> before you invest. It's okay to take a pass. There, there seems to be no end anyway of interesting consumer goods companies that are coming to market this year. Well, I hope not, because we have an entire year and you know infinite more shows to do, Osset. <laughs> That's right, people. Give us work. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next time when we cover all of those fun businesses coming to public markets, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Emily. Fun as always. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, don't be afraid to shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For us at Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!